Hello, greetings, everybody. I'm Gareth. This is Somewhere on Earth, and it is Tuesday, the 2nd of January, 2024. We're here in our studio in London. We have guests today from the United States and Kenya as well. Happy New Year. Or is it a happy new year? Our guests are here with some of the tech issues that are going to matter in 2024. And spoiler alert, it's not all necessarily particularly cheerful listening, but it is fascinating and it is important. Stay with us. But let's just kind of meet the folks anyway and start with a bit of a chit chat here. Wairimu Gitahi is back with us again. How are you doing, Wairimu? Very, very well. Hello, Gareth. How are you, Steve? Indeed, all good. And um, I'm going to ask you, and indeed all of our guests today, like it's the new year, right? So have you made a New Year's tech resolution? And if so, what is it? What tech thing are you just going to do better in 2024? I'm going to throw out or give in for recycling everything that I'm not using, like old phones, old cables. I keep on, you know, I have a heap of them and I keep on saying probably I'll use them. Maybe they'll get fixed. You know, all sorts of ridiculous ideas. Uh, all right. So your your so extension cables as well. Yes. <laughs> Lots of re- I remember the extension cables from the other week. That's that stayed no, with although, me. Although extension cables are pretty easy to fix. So I think I'll keep those. That's and, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in, in fact, that taps into another really good New Year's tech resolution for everybody, which is if you can and if you can do it safely, fix it. Yeah. But if not, get it recycled. Good one. Thank you. Where are you, me? In the studio here in London with me is the excellent uh, tech journalist, Peter Guest. So, Pete, do you have a New Year's tech resolution? Well, Wairimi's made me feel very guilty because hers is very worthy. I mean, my (laughs) mind is really just to stop mourning Twitter. Oh. It's the first social network I actually really invested in. And the first one I sort of felt I had a personal and professional community on. But it's just not what it was. And... I've been through the stages of grief on it. I've clung to it. I've hoped it would get better. I've been in denial, but I think it's time to accept it and call it X and move on. Oh, it's, uh, I was going to say, it reminds me almost of those conversations that we might have about, you know, that, that when you're jilted by a lover, if it's ever happened to you and you just go through all those grief stages of grief and so on. And, and then especially when you said, yeah, it's my ex now. I, I just thought that all ties in. So there you go. Pete, mourning for his former social media lover. <laughs> That's my words, not his <laughs> in any way whatsoever. <laughs> right. Um, Issy Lepowski, how about you joining us from the United States? It's good to have you on again. So do you have a a New Year's tech resolution? So I actually had this resolution starting before the new year. Um, I have decided to try to keep my phone out of the room anytime my kid is in the room because for two reasons. One, he loves to grab it and use it and get addicted to it like I do. And two, I should be interacting with him and not my phone when he's around. So I started that a little bit early, but it's been going well. I made a similar resolution some time ago when my nephew was all of about three years old to keep my phone away from him because he very quickly learned how to get into my phone. And um, before I knew it, he, he must have been about three or four, but changing like the wallpaper background on my smartphone and stuff. <laughs> and 
you know, it wasn't so bad the day that he changed it to a Triumph Tiger 900 because I, I quite fancied one of those bikes. But it's still, I don't know, it was just a little bit unnerving that he'd done that. So <laughs> I think that's very good advice there and a good New Year's tech resolution from New Issy. And uh, if I might have one for free as the chair of this discussion, yes, thank you, everybody. Um, mine is to try and be more consistent about how I use um, description on images because um, on many of the social media platforms, including the aforementioned X. Um, you, of course, you, you can put some text up there for people who might be visually impaired or ha- may have other reasons for needing a text description of the image. And I've got into the habit of doing that quite often. But I mean, hands up here, guilty. Sometimes I forget and I post something on social media and then have to go back and edit the image and put the text on afterwards. And sometimes I just plain forget. And that's not good. So I'm just going to try and get more consistent on that. There we go. So that's how all of us are going to use our tech new resolutions to make our lives and the whole world a better place that's about the end of the cheerful stuff folks but we've got a lot of really good stuff to get through so stay with us here we go Right then, so it is 2024, so we're priming you with a few trends and global tech issues to have your eye on in the year ahead, including, of course, the US election. That's coming up. Misinformation is likely, I'm afraid, to be a big part of the story, though. Uh, The tech companies have been culling their online safety teams, and there have been some court battles over the First Amendment and the legality, therefore, of removing false information. We're also going to find out about some of the tech trends in Kenya, especially when it comes to the likes of job tech. And will 2024 be a good year for murderous regimes who don't like their critics very much, wherever those critics may happen to be? Because, of course, ever-improving surveillance and tracking tech suggests that 2024 could be a year that the bad people have even more chances to um, get their hands on, shall we say, um, the less bad people. So you might be in exile in the UK or the US, but that doesn't necessarily make you safe anymore. That's all right here on the Somewhere on Earth podcast. All right, Issy, let's come to you first. I mentioned at the top there, of course, it is US election year, and you've been looking into the likely role of misinformation, haven't you? So just kind of set this up for us. And perhaps if we go back to the previous election in 2020, misinformation was already a story then. It's clearly developed and not in a particularly encouraging way. So just give us the background here. Right. So misinformation, I would say, has been, you know, part of elections forever. Um, I would say online misinformation and in particular disinformation, which is really intentional efforts to mislead and confuse people became a real issue um, that, you know, companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google were all trying to deal with around the 2016 election. They really found themselves flat footed in the U.S. around, you know, Russian efforts to spread disinformation uh, before that election. So in the years between 2016 and 2020, they put a lot of resources, these companies, into um, fighting misinformation, fighting disinformation. Information And I would say the government responded as well. Um, 
where we what we see is after 2020, there were not only a ton of layoffs in the tech industry, including, you know, layoffs that impacted employees who work on this kind of stuff. But there was a tremendous backlash to the way that those companies had policed misinformation during that election, and the way that the government had gotten involved. And so what you have now is sort of the pendulum swinging in the other direction, where there are, uh, you know, legal cases um, regarding, you know, how much pressure the government can put on a tech platform to remove content without violating the First Amendment. The Supreme Court here in the United States is expected to take that up. You have the uh, the the trust and safety teams at these tech companies are, are much smaller um, and, and less resourced. And outside of those companies, you have a slew of, you know, misinformation researchers in academia who have really been under attack over the last couple of years. Um, and that's under political attack and, you know, just attack from from, from members of the public. Um, these are legal attacks. They are, you know, sort of drowning in public records requests that they can't answer, um, all because a lot of people don't like that anyone, the government or tech companies or independent researchers, should be deciding um, what is and is not the truth with regard to the elections. So it, it's clearly just this age-old debate, isn't it, between freedom of information and online safety. And it just seems to be rising to such a crescendo now and will continue to do so in 2024, I see. It really is. And I should note that it's not just the US. Elections are happening around the world in 2024, including in countries like India, um, hugely populated and have you know big problems with misinformation and disinformation. And I should say, with government crackdowns on on information. So that's sort of, you know, the flip side of the coin where you see um, what the worst case scenario could be when you have, um, you know, a, a significant amount of, of content censorship um, online um, from a political regime. Um, so these platforms do have to consider that they are global companies. They operate in in uh, in countries with more repressive regimes, as we're going to talk about later. Um, and and so that's why they, you know, are are having to walk a very fine line um, when it comes to policing misinformation. Now, another issue that we've seen uh, certainly over the last year is is technology firms, especially X, Stroke Twitter and Reddit, they've made it harder for developers and indeed researchers to have access to their APIs. And you may just need to bring a few of our listeners up to speed here about what we mean by an API, you know, the way that you can use, as it were, a kit of parts relating to a tech platform in order to go and, you know, scrape data, for instance, for analytics, for insights, for research. So can you just give me the dummy's guide? Well, let's say more for me than anything, as if I'm blaming listeners for this, but just help me out here, Issy. What do we mean by an API? Sure. So there's a way that most of us interact with a platform like what was called Twitter, now X, or Reddit, we see sort of the consumer-facing platform. Um, and we're meant to interact with that in in the way that a consumer would, um, you know, clicking through individual posts or going to specific, uh, you know, threads or subreddits that we're interested in. We're not trying to suck up the entirety of everything that's published on Reddit or on Twitter that day. But researchers often 
are. And an API is basically a technical, uh, I would say, window into all of that information where you used to be able to or still can for a very hefty price, uh, you know, look at all of the real-time information flowing through Twitter and Reddit. And that was incredibly useful to misinformation researchers because if you think about other platforms like YouTube, for instance, I mean, video is really hard to parse. That is not something that you can do, you know, where you can't just necessarily um, plug in keywords and find all the videos you're looking for. Facebook, a lot of stuff happens in pri- on private pages, in private groups, um, people's private profiles. Uh, there's just a lot more private content on Facebook that isn't so easy to scan. Twitter and Reddit are sort of meant to be public platforms, and so they always, though they're much smaller than those other platforms, served as this sort of real-time window into um, what was spreading, and you could pretty much bet that if something was spreading on Twitter and Reddit, it was spreading on other platforms as well. Researchers since Elon Musk came into the picture at Twitter, now X, uh, have been effectively cut off from that real-time window because they have driven the pricing up so much. And so it's no longer tenable for a researcher all day, every day, um, you know, in the weeks surrounding, you know, before and after an election to be, you know, constantly putting a call into that API. The cost is just entirely too high. But because the, the the likes of Twitter, Stroke X, and Reddit have just made it harder to, or, or nigh on impossible, especially if you're a researcher with limited funds, just to be able to go through this what was previously a treasure trove of real time data to get insights into all kinds of things, including tracking down misinformation. Just a final one from you, Issy, and we'll move on. I'm sure we'll be able to open it out to a bit of a chit chat towards the end as well. Um, just on. Um, in the an article you wrote about this, you said something very interesting, which is one kind of easy win might be in dealing with this very complicated problem. Just like taking out a few lines of code in one of these platforms can get rid of, for instance, the infamous reshare buttons. And, and of course, people love pressing reshare and like and all those kinds of things. But in the first instance, if I read it correctly anyway, you suggested that that might be initially, especially during very sensitive times, a potential fix. What I was writing about, and this is an article for Fast Company that I published before the new year, uh, was about the idea that if misinformation research is under attack – folks are starting to look for what they're calling content agnostic interventions. So rather than saying uh, you, Facebook users, should not be allowed to write XYZ about you know COVID-19 vaccines, about their relative risks, um, those were very content specific. They were saying this is speech that you cannot say. Um, where I think the field is moving a little bit more toward is content agnostic recommendations. So rather than talking about the speech itself, maybe we can talk about how how any kind of speech is able to be shared and spread. So one example of that that you mentioned is removing reshare buttons. It turns out that one way that misinformation spreads is when people six reshare clicks down the line are continuing to share a piece of misinformation over and over and over. They don't know where it originated. And if you kind of can cut that off a little bit sooner, maybe say the researchers haven't given a number, but a smaller number of reshares, that misinformation is less likely to explode. All right, Issy, thank you. Now, also with us, of course, is Wairimu. We heard her New Year's tech resolution at the top there about recycling and a bit of uh, repair. But what else is on your mind, Wairimu, as we enter the new year? Because I gather from you anyway that you Mm. think climate tech is going to become more and more important in 2024. So tell us more. 
Yes, I actually think climate tech will be the new fintech, yeah? And I'm saying this also very much in the context of what's going on right now, the COP28 happening in Dubai. Um, just yesterday, there was, um, there was a report that was released um, by, um, by Catalyst Fund, which is a global accelerator for African startups that, uh, African startups that are working to support uh, climate resilience. So the report is called Investing in Climate Tech Innovation in Africa. And basically, it's a landscape of African uh, climate uh, ventures and uh, innovate, uh, investors. So one of the things that was highlighted in this um, report was that, um, of course, uh, this report is looking at things from the venture, uh, venture building side, investor side, funding side of climate startups. And it said that between 2019 and 2023, uh, climate-related uh, startups in Africa um, reached uh, $3.4 billion in funding. Wow. So why is, this, why is this important in this context? Let's just contextualize it. Yeah. So in this context, um, it's because this amount uh, reached nearly 60% of the total funding that has been invested in fintech. You must remember that fintech is a much more mature sector than uh, climate tech. So that's what makes me predict that in time, climate tech will be the new fintech. And I see a situation where even when funders are, for example, in considering uh, doing due diligence of whether they should, be, they should invest in a company or not, they will right. be asking, is this company climate smart? Right. Or even you, Gareth, when you're buying something, a sudden innovation. Yeah. Okay. You right. So, so you mean at the individual level that the, from well, what you're saying, you well. know, you're you're talking to us from Nairobi. Um, consumers increasingly thinking about the climate aspect of all kinds of things that they buy, but also at that more business to business level. If you're an investor, um, or if you're looking for business partnerships and so on, climate really matters. And uh, and you're absolutely right. Of course, we had COP28 uh, during most of December, so in many ways we're still in the aftermath of COP. And you know, it could be argued that almost everywhere climate matters. Everyone's talking about it, especially as I say in this kind of aftermath of COP. But you seem to be saying no. There is something specific to this region across the continent of Africa, maybe especially sub-Saharan Africa, where we're talking, why we're talking about this. It may seem self-evident, but just flesh out for us why it matters to individuals and in business. Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan brand. My next move, helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. It matters in individuals and business. Um, it matters to Africa uh, specifically because you know that as much as Africa is not to blame for most of uh, climate change, um, uh, these climate change situations, it's, Africa is among uh, the continents that are suffering the most, you see. So this sort of idea of checking out if things are cl climate smart, 
is very important for the continent uh, because it means so many things. It means, for example, if you are uh, building an innovation that is, for example, helping farmers be able to detect different seasons, uh, be able to know the so- soil quality and stuff like that, it means that they will plant crops in relation to what's happening in terms of climate change. So this is very important for, for, for our continent at the moment. So climate tech, something to look out for in the year ahead. So Pete Guest here in the studio, bit of a subject change, but um, you're really interested at the moment and kind of concerned about a, a trend that we've seen already that we're going to see more about this kind of extra national victimization of people, you know, so authoritarian regimes whose um, tentacles increasingly through technology, apart from anything else, can spread out beyond the home country and be a real threat, for instance, to dissidents or exiles, especially those who may criticise them from outside the country. So tell us about this. So the authoritarian governments have always been nervous of exiles and wanted to put pressure on them. So maybe to make them just be quiet, not agitate, maybe to try and recruit them, make them spy for you. That's not at all new, right? Go back to the 1970s. It's the kind of core of John le Carré novels and, you know, James Bond and so on. But think about how you had to do that. If you were sat in the Kremlin and you wanted to harass an emigre in Paris, you had to physically get someone in the country. That's pretty high risk, right? It's probably quite expensive and you can't just do it on a massive scale. But technology has massively changed that equation. So for a start, everyone's online. There are a lot more what you'd call attack vectors. You know, you don't need to open someone's mail physically, steam it open, put the stamp back and so on. You can hack their email. Um, if you want to ruin someone's reputation, you can impersonate them online or spread disinformation on like social media. Deep fakes and so on. We haven't even got to the deep fake era wow. yet, precisely. Um, <laughs> That'll be next year. <laughs> um, you can troll them, you can send them messages, you can get into their WhatsApp groups, all those kind of things, right? And for countries with deeper pockets, there are much more sophisticated things, you know, proper phone hacking tools, surveillance techniques. And we're just seeing that happen more and more. And there's a bunch of reasons for it, but one of the big ones is technology. You know, the tools you need to do this kind of thing, they're just ever more accessible. They're even off the shelf. You know, if I want to take down an opposition newspaper in exile, I'm not suggesting I'm going to do this, but all I need is a crypto wallet and a browser that lets me access the dark web. Yeah, no, sure. And, you know, thinking back to one of the big diplomatic headlines from 2023, of course, Justin Trudeau accusing India of the murder of a Sikh separatist in British Columbia. So it's a Canadian sovereign territory here. And that's a big and continues to be a big diplomatic issue between Canada and uh, the government of India. And is that the kind of thing that you are looking at then? That's a a particularly high profile example of this kind of uh, activity. So India's a really interesting example um and it's probably important to mention that the indian government's distanced themselves from that uh, although the fbi in the us has also claimed to have um have prevented another similar case so yeah, i've worked on quite a few stories on what we call transnational repression a lot but most of the cases have been the kind of obviously repressive countries it's rwanda it's iran it's china you all have these diasporas who they think are a threat but india I mean, we've all read stories about the kind of authoritarian tilt in India itself, the way it's acting at home. We don't see it in the same category as those places, but maybe we should. And this is something I think which is is genuinely quite concerning, is that because the tools have become available, people think, well, I should probably use them then, shouldn't I? Mm. And that's the really chilling aspect, I suppose. Yeah, the technology is there. And presumably readily available, you know, especially if you have the resources of the state behind you, 
either to purchase off the shelf technology or commission people within your borders or even outside your borders to put this tech together? I mean, there's definitely the tools available, right? And at one scale, you've got the kind of Pegasus, which is the phone hacking device that was an Israeli phone hacking software, which, you know, you could basically turn someone's phone into a listening device. That was really expensive. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars for a license. So if I wanted to do that, I needed to invest. But you think about just how much of our lives are online. And in the journalism world, we spend a lot of time in the last few years developing open source intelligence, OSINT techniques, right? Now, what that means is that I can probably, or somebody who is an expert in this, can can look at your online profile and figure out the things that you do. You know, they can probably see your friends, your family, who you're connected to. Maybe if you're not particularly good at security, they can see your weird eBay buying habits or where you're booking your holidays. Or maybe they can triangulate where you work or where you live. And that's not wildly beyond the bounds of you know possibility. And it's also something you can do relatively cheaply. And that's quite scary. But I think the more scary thing beyond that is that with, when you cover this sort of stuff, it isn't done, it isn't in isolation. It isn't just tech, right? Surveillance or harassment online is just often part of a spectrum of bad things that happen to people. And the end game is to make people frightened. They don't want to speak out. They'll do what you ask them. And if you look at some of the cases, particularly around Pegasus, they ended very badly. You know, in Mexico, there were an alarming number of cases of people who had Pegasus on their phone who turned up dead. Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi writer, he was tracked with Pegasus before he died. And a couple of years ago, I, I interviewed Corinne Kanimba, who was one of the uh, like leading activists against Pegasus. She was hacked. Her father was kidnapped, sent to jail in Rwanda. You know, the physical and the digital threats overlap, and that's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, a, a final thought then. A possibility, could 2024, if things go slightly better, be the year of the fight back by... Um, you can see I'm desperately trying to make this a more cheerful story. <laughs> yeah. It's serious, I know it is, Peter, but I'm just, just one, trying to invert it slightly. But wondering if 2024 could be the, the year we might look back and say, well, this is where um, sort of dissidents, maybe exiles, managed to fight back, that they managed to have in their hands technologies that improved... The way their own security and some of the obvious ones, I suppose, are the encrypted end-to-end encryption messaging apps, for instance, that people already have access to. I don't know. It's I, I hate to cast everything as a battle, but if it is one, then it seems from what you're saying as if the, the you know the, the 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 bad authoritarian regimes are likely to have the upper hand in the year ahead. I mean, look, of course. If you're running an Excel website on a tiny budget in the UK and arrayed against you is the financial and technical power of the Chinese government, you are the underdog. I guess if we wanted to try and find a, a positive here, well, there's two things, actually. One, we've named it, right? This is something we are talking about. And it, previously it was happening in the dark. We've seen that there's been a quite a lot of attention in the UK on Hong Kong diaspora being targeted. We're talking about it. And when it was happening in the dark, it was much more dangerous. The other thing is that, you know, to go back to what Izzy was saying, some of the tools to fix this, they exist, right? One of the most challenging things to watch has been the platforms stopping being allies in this. And the same things that Izzy was talking about, cutting of trust and safety teams, cutting of the tools for fighting these bad actors, those are the same tools you need to stop this stuff happening, at least at the basic level. And if you fix one, maybe you fix both. Right, okay. So... We mentioned Izzy there. Let's bring Izzy back in. Thank you very much indeed for that, by the way, Pete, and a happy new year. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Issy, I have a, a similar, just to round things off, kind of where do you see this going kind of question, coming back to misinformation and the US election. And you can answer this question either, you know, with the big one, that you, how you think it might affect the result, or even just how you think this whole issue of misinformation online might play out in terms of the campaigns, the lessons maybe to campaign managers, how it might affect whether people go out to vote or not. Might be. Do, do, do you have any, you know, we've been talking, I wouldn't say completely in the abstract, but you know what I mean, just in terms of on the ground, what we're going to see in the year ahead um, at the polling booths or elsewhere. What do you envisage? Yeah, I know you were asking for some cheerier insights, but I'm afraid I don't have any to share. I think that um, I think it's really going to be a challenge um, to to manage misinformation and even to get out, you know, real information. I mean, if you think about it. You know, Twitter for so long was sort of this like uh, this resting place for every bit of official media from like the weather service to like celebrities accounts to politicians. And now, um, you know, Peter's mourning it like it is not what it used to be. We don't have the same level of verification. Um, so how do you know that X, Y, Z, you know, um, voting authority in whatever local uh, municipality is really who they they say they they are. Um, and, and I think that, you know, Twitter changing in the way it has, has kind of given permission to a lot of other companies to take their foot off the gas here. Um, and if you have misinformation researchers afraid to, to do their work, or at least needing a ton of legal cover and resources in order to do that work, if you have a government that cannot tell these tech companies um, where the threats exist, um, I think, you know, I think it's going to be really, really messy. And I don't think campaigns are, are equipped um, you know, campaigns are always kind of looking at the last election for guidance on the next one. Um, and the last two elections are not going to tell them much about how to get the word out in such a fragmented, um, fraught environment. All right. Well, I wasn't expecting a cheerful answer and I didn't get one, but my goodness, it was a good answer. So, Izzy, thank you. And um, uh, Wairimu, let's just finish with you then and um, climate tech. And again, a kind of how do you see this playing out kind of question. And I'm thinking back to the likes of M-Pesa, you know, the really pioneering mobile banking uh, or mobile payment app, I should say, you know, years old now. And in so many ways showed the rest of the world what uh, mobile transactions could look like like even before we even know what a smartphone was um do you think cl- climate tech in uh, the african continent might be another example of that apps and services or approaches to the business approaches maybe could set examples that the rest of the world will follow in 2024 and beyond yes for sure i think the thing is that of course mpesa really continues to become a big thing in kenya and um, what's happening is that M-Pesa was one of its kind. But now as we go on and on with all this technology, as I said before, I think it's also an issue of integrating both. Why I keep on going back to the issue, for example, of agriculture is because, of course, agriculture plays a very big role in Africa. So as we go on, this is something that will be very useful for many people to combine tech and climate. Because for me, it's like a source of information of how you can be able to use um, information in the, on, on the climate side of things to be able to improve what you're doing or make decision about a certain purchase. So that's why it's going to become very, very important for the continent. Okay. 
and there we'll leave it. And my highly cheerful prediction is that we will see and hear from you all as the year goes on. Definitely, and I'm really looking forward to that. Warimi, thank you very much indeed uh, from Kenya and also to you, Issy, in the United States and uh, Pete here in London. Let's just quickly do the socials before I say goodbye. Uh, so if you want to get in touch uh, via email, we are hello at somewhereonearth.co. That's hello at somewhereonearth.co. And um, of course, we, we are easy to find in terms of pretty much wherever you want your social media um generally soap tech will find us so s-o-e-p tech and on whatsapp we are code 7486-329-484 audio production in this edition has been by callum swingler and uh, john cronin here at lanson's team farna um, and our production manager is liz tui the editors anita tarovich and i met you i've completely forgotten what my name is there you go see you next week folks bye-bye